welcome to the Five Oceans Podcast with hosts Mark Campbell and Chris Gervais from Five Oceans Advisors, a fee-only financial advisory firm serving Gen X and Gen Y founders and C-suite entrepreneurs. Mark and Chris share the core beliefs that traditional wealth management is now a commodity and that clients deserve more from their financial advisors. As founders and entrepreneurs themselves, Mark and Chris have developed a new model for wealth management called Life Strategy, a proprietary system designed to teach clients how to connect the dots between money and happiness with the ultimate goal of empowering them to be whom they want to be in the world. Now, onto the show. Hello, I'm Mark Campbell, and along with my co-host and business partner, Chris Gearbase, welcome to the Five Oceans Podcast. Today is another episode of our podcast mini-series called the Exit Planning Toolkit, which is meant to provide valuable insights to founders and C-suite entrepreneurs who are on their way towards a meaningful exit from their business. Very excited today to welcome today's guest, Kara Koss. Uh, we have been fortunate enough to work with Kara on a number of clients over the years, and so we're very excited to have her today. She is a partner at the law firm Arnold & Porter. She focuses on uh, advising high net worth individuals, both domestically and internationally, on a wide range of sophisticated matters, including estate planning, trust and estate administration, lifetime giving, family office formation and counseling, asset protection, business succession planning, and tax compliance. Kara specializes in structuring tax-efficient wealth transfer strategies for clients designed to preserve family legacies through the generations, protect assets from potential creditors, and incorporate clients' philanthropic and other non-tax objectives. So with that, Kara, welcome to the Five Oceans podcast. Thank you, Mark. I'm so happy to be with you today. Yeah, Kara, thank you so much for joining us. This is a, a lot of fun. Definitely looking forward to this. You and I have had the opportunity to work closely together on multiple clients now. Um, and just so the audience knows, we think so highly of Kara. Um, she's been so helpful to our practice and clients. And also, she's just a very kind, genuine, nice person. So um, looking forward to jumping into the conversation here. And I'll start us off by reminding this is the Exit Planning Toolkit podcast and there are some themes that we we'll, that we're going to touch on in every single episode of this mini series and one of them is the importance of having and assembling a really great team and one person um a role that is very important on that team is an estate planning attorney which Kara um is a specialist in estate planning so um, another theme that, that I know Kara is going to hit on is the importance of having this team in place prior to signing an LOI. I'm going to say that in every episode, <laughs> and we're going to talk more about why that's the case. But before jumping into more what we'll call advanced estate planning tactics, Kara, I, I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about basic estate planning. So core documents, and even before you, you have a taxable estate and you have a significant business asset. Um, let's talk about core documents and basic planning for a few minutes, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And listen, thank you both for having me. It's exciting to be here. Um, I, I have been working with Five Oceans for a long time and, and think you guys have a really special and unique way of approaching this. And I'm pleased to be partnering with you on this. So um, thank you. So, so the basic estate planning question um, is one that comes up a lot. 
when I talk about core estate planning documents, what I'm thinking about is a will. Uh, so what will govern your assets when you die? Sometimes that's structured as what's called a pour over will with a revocable trust. Either way, they they together collectively govern your, your assets at death. And then also the powers of attorney. So your healthcare power of attorney, your financial power of attorney, uh, those typically govern in the event of incapacity, or maybe if you just can't be reached in an emergency. Um, so those together constitute what I think about as the core estate planning documents. Um, my view is that everyone should have them in general, <laughs> uh, but it's it's especially important for business owners to have them um, because I've seen over the years circumstances where those documents aren't in place the unfortunate tragedy occurs and there's a problem. Um, it could be uh, an incapacity problem and no one has authority to make decisions on behalf of the company. Uh, those issues tend to result in long drawn out guardianship proceedings. It can be quite messy um, where there's no will in place. You could face intestacy that the company could fall into the hands of a, a beneficiary that you really didn't intend to benefit. So um, just sort of high level, I think they're important to have your affairs in order, as they say, um, and have these things sort of ready to go in the event the unthinkable is is going to happen. Yeah, we totally agree that everybody, when it comes to core documents, everybody, every this this is called adulting. Every every everybody needs <laughs> core documents, even you know, even before you're necessarily you know married or have children. Especially when those things happen, everyone should have core documents. And and in 2023, it's it's a lot more accessible. It's easier to get high quality core documents today than maybe it was 10 years ago. Um, so we definitely beat that drum uh, as you do. And and the business continuity. So as we get into more advanced estate planning tactics, one of the things that I've learned over the years working with founders that I think is really interesting. Is I'll I'll ask the question when we you know first meet a new client. Um, I simply put it in my terms. I just say, "Do you know what happens to your business if something tragic should happen to you?" And an overwhelmingly amount of the time, the answer is, "I have no idea," or "I think it's in a document somewhere." <laughs> um, those are the two most popular answers, and that's freaked me out a couple times in the past. I don't know if you have. You mentioned some some sort of high level issues that could happen, but do you have any particular I don't know horror story of someone who didn't have any <laughs> business continuity in place? And particularly, and, and some of these founders have had significant assets. We're not we're talking a significant amount of money. That yes, if if uh, because nothing, no plan is in place, their their spouse now becomes business partners with their business partner and can create a lot of pretty major headaches. It, yeah, exactly. I think what you stated, Chris, happens all the time. I, the other thing you see is you just kind of have a basic estate plan that says everything to my kids and the business itself isn't really dealt with in any meaningful way. And so now you see fighting between the kids. They disagree about how to run the company. There's really not a designated next in line. Um, maybe nobody's really been trained in in the company or the company's philosophy. And so, uh, you know, I, I've seen it play out in, in lengthy, I, I'm talking decades, court battles. I, I mean, it can be really ugly and really messy. So 
when I'm talking to clients who have given me a similar answer to what you described, like, I really don't know what happens to my company. I try to break it down in what I hope is a little bit more digestible way of thinking about it. So when you're thinking about your company and what's going to happen to it, if something were to happen to you, there are two pieces that might be coordinated or might be totally separate. One is control. Who is going to end up making decisions for the company? Who's driving the business? Who has the philosophy and the expertise to make this happen? So that's sort of part one. Part two is who is going to be the economic beneficial owner of the company? So to the extent the company is profitable, where will the money flow? And those, as I said, those might be the same. So maybe it's sort of everything goes to my spouse. That's fine. She can run the company. Uh, she can also profit from all the earnings. That's all fine. Uh, but but maybe it's not the same. Maybe control needs to vest in a business partner or one of the children or whatever the case may be. And maybe the economics go to someone else, family members, distant family members, um, you know, in the case of an unmarried client uh, who doesn't have children, you know, if you don't have estate planning documents in order, the next in line is your parents. And so are your parents, maybe you're fine benefiting them economically, but do you want your parents to be voting your shares? That's a very different question. So sometimes it's a little bit easier to think about it in those two sort of discrete ways. Now you can uh, address these issues either in an operating agreement or in a separate agreement, whether it's a buy-sell or just a separate agreement addressing business continuity, correct? Do you have any, Is there are there any advantages of doing it one way over the other, or does it just, is that more of um, just depends on the business partners and, and a matter of preference? I, I think it depends a little bit. Uh, there are sort of pros and cons of doing it different ways and the complexity of the structure matters, how many partners you have might matter, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but, you know, certainly within the the operating agreement of the company, whether it's structured as a corporation or a limited liability company, there are ways to bake into that some control provisions, who is next in line, even if they're somewhat short term, you can have backup managers, backup directors, whatever the case may be. Um, so at least that's a start so that in the face of this tragedy happening, it's clear who steps up the the path is sort of laid out in terms of who will be running things during what could be honestly a very chaotic and troubling time for the company. Um, in terms of other kinds of secondary agreements, buy-sells, for example, those can be really useful to make sure that the economics get to where they need to be, but the control gets where it needs to be. So if what you're saying is, look, I want my spouse to benefit, but I want my business partner to run it, then you're thinking about maybe a structure where, you know, the partner has uh, is the beneficiary of an insurance policy that you put into place so that he has the funds to purchase from your spouse the shares so that your spouse gets all the economic benefit, but your business partner can buy the shares and, and run the company, you know, something like that. Um, but again, it's a little bit case specific. It's a good uh, it's a good reminder. Insurance is oftentimes a part of this conversation because something happens to you, your spouse is the beneficiary. Great, twenty five million dollars is owed to you or to your spouse. Technically, um, does the business have twenty five million dollars of cash laying around to be able to pay that? Most likely not. Insurance comes into play. So these are all these are all things that need to 
be addressed. Um, I think where I'd love to go next is on the path to leading up to doing more advanced estate planning. Can we talk about the the lifetime estate and gift tax exemption and what that is? Um, what it means for folks who, let's say, have a taxable estate. And then once we kind of define that, then we'll get into ways maybe to mitigate estate and gift taxes. Yeah. So what it is, you have all U.S. taxpayers have a lifetime exemption amount. This is a unified amount that applies against gift tax while you're alive and to the extent you don't use it against estate tax. That's the unification concept. So currently that amount is $12.9 million per taxpayer. So uh, roughly 12.9. So that's the amount I can gift today, uh, this year. That's my lifetime time amount. Once I've gifted that amount, I can't make any more tax-free gifts uh, with a couple of specific exclusions, which I can talk about. Um, if I were to pass away, having made those lifetime gifts, I have zero estate tax exemption. So my entire estate becomes taxable. The flip side of that is if I make no gifts, then I have my entire exemption available to apply against estate tax. But as you, as you can tell, you know what the gift exemption is today. You don't know for most of us, when you're going to die and what the exemption will be at that time. And so there's real benefit, especially today, while the exemption is so high. And we know it's temporarily high because under the current law, without any future act from Congress, the exemption is going to be cut, cut in half in 2026. So we're in sort of a moment of temporarily high exemption amounts uh, that will go away. And so the thinking from a very high level general perspective is that you have the opportunity to make gifts now, today. You have the ability to make up to $12.9 million worth of gifts today. In a couple of years, you'll have the ability to make half that amount. And whatever is left in your estate when you pass away will be subject to estate tax less whatever exemption you didn't use. So that's sort of the way that works, Chris. And just to confirm, those those the numbers you share, twelve point nine, and then it's due to get cut in half at the end of twenty twenty five. Those are doubled if you're a married couple, more or less, right? That is true. Where where one spouse is an owner in the business and the other is not, and you're thinking of making gifts of company equity, you really do have to shift interests between the two spouses um, or you have to do a kind of gift uh, that's called a split gift arrangement where husband and wife agree to take on the tax liability of splitting the gift. Uh, so there are ways around it, but generally speaking, that that's fair. Usually married couples think about a combined number. I think it's interesting right now. I mean, right now is a really, it's actually a really interesting time in estate planning me better than I do, but you have a lot of people out there, a lot of entrepreneurs um, who may be cruising around the five to $10 million net worth mark. And particularly the folks we generally work with are usually on the younger side of things, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and, and right now they're thinking possibly if they're married, um, we're not going to have to deal with this or even need to think about it and until we have a $26 million estate, you know, $26 million mm -hmm. net worth. 
Uh, but the reality is that as soon as 2025 rolls around or the, it's the end of 2025, correct? Correct. Um, Soon as the end of 2025 rolls around, now all of a sudden that that taxable estate is is going to be right in their face, particularly if their business is still growing and whatnot, and if they're young investing. So there are just a lot of people that haven't needed to think about this in a long time who now are, you know, hopefully going to be seriously thinking about it here um, in the next, you know, between now and the end of 2025. So now is to is to take action for anyone listening who fits that description. Um, definitely take action on that because things are going to change here pretty quickly. I'm sorry, yeah. Mark, did you want to add something as well? Uh, no, I, uh, I, I think, I think I thought of like you, a, uh, you've had an expected look. <laughs> I did. I think that I thought of like a joke that I was going to sneak in there and then the moment passed. So I think it's better that we continue on and I look for another opportunity to say something silly. <laughs> well, let me just uh, take it one step even gloomier than uh, than Chris, which is oh, to boy. say not, <laughs> not <laughs> just is the exemption going to go down, but as your assets grow, which is not gloomy, but you know there are other sort of larger economic factors at play, right? We've got all-time high national debt, inflation a little bit out of control, and so all of these things are likely not going to result in a tax cut anytime mm-hmm. soon. I don't see the exemption going back up again. I don't see our estate tax rates going down anytime soon. Historically, estate tax has been um, a little bit easier to keep the rates high than than income tax. And so... Um, it is possible that this is a, a moment we're having with the exemption amount and that we won't see rates this low and exemptions this high for a very long time. Okay. It's a really big, big opportunity to take advantage of um, in today's environment. That's good to know. Um, okay. So we've talked about the lifetime exemption, how it's going to change. And again, a, a, any any part of your net worth above that, if you don't do any advanced estate planning at least is going to be taxed at 40%. And, you know, I'll say not everybody's goal is to pay zero taxes or even not everybody's goal, believe it or not, is to pay as little taxes as possible. Everyone has kind of different beliefs in that realm. But my experience has been most people would rather control where their money is going to go, whether it to be two family members and heirs, charities, causes they care about, more so than um, you know, then handing it to the government and the government making those decisions. That being the case, let's talk about some specific strategies on how to avoid paying that 40% tax. And I'd love to start if you're cool with it. We're going to be talking about um, qualified small business stock um, in the episode where you interview Lewis Hamill, CPA, digging into what it is, how to qualify for it, et cetera. Um, clearly there's an opportunity to avoid a, a pretty massive amount of capital gains taxes when one goes to sell their business. Can we talk about QSBS stacking for a minute? Definitely. Uh, this is a favorite topic. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll assume the audience has heard about QSBS and, and how it works. And, and let's say you have QSBS shares. So as as you may know, you have in those QSBS shares an exclusion from gain that is equal to the greater of $10 million or 10 times your basis in the stock. So I've had clients, for example, that have far in excess of a $10 million gain exclusion. 
Um, that's for you. That's your personal QSBS shareholder exclusion. The concept of QSBS stacking is that there's in the tax code, it's an exclusion for the taxpayer. So if you create trusts that are separate taxpayers for U.S. income tax purposes, and they each have QSBS shares that they hold, wouldn't each one of them qualify for their own separate QSBS stacking? So in simple terms, if you have $100 million worth of QSBS shares and you set up 10 trusts, can each of the 10 trusts, if you put your shares evenly among those trusts, can each of the 10 trusts have their own $10 million exclusion? The answer might be yes. Um, and there are ways to do careful, thoughtful planning um, I do think at some point there's a line you want to be careful not to cross, but where the trusts are truly intended to be different trusts, they're benefiting different groups of people. Um, there are other ways to make the trust truly different. Um, I think a lot of non-tax planning goes into thinking through the QSBS stacking, but if done correctly and, and done well, I think the result in a lot of cases for my clients has been that they have several separate QSBS trusts that each have qualified for their own exclusion. And as a result, the family as a whole has benefited from a tremendous amount of gain exclusion. Let me pause there and see if you have questions. That was a lot. It, it makes sense to me. Um, I mean, that that's obviously a big deal. You're talking about the um, the savings of at, at that point in the example you use tens of millions of dollars of, of capital gains. And we should be clear, we're talking about federal capital gains. Sometimes there are states like the state of California that don't recognize QSBS. But um, but that is a, a very, very powerful strategy. Now, question for you, answer as you 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 feel uh best. These are, if I'm not mistaken, irrevocable trusts. So if I'm the business owner, I may be thinking, well, you know, am I really ready at this point to say adios to that amount of money? How does that work if I'm kind of trying to balance, you know, control of the assets, how they're invested, whatnot, placing them in the irrevocable trust, and then even maybe being concerned about not being able to access that money during my lifetime if I maybe wanted or needed to? Yeah, so you're right that they're irrevocable. Uh, that's going to be sort of a threshold condition for them qualifying as separate taxpayers. But what what the QSBS stacking rules and, and separate trust rules apply to is an income tax issue. And what you're, I think, asking a little bit more about, Chris, is an estate tax issue. And, and the rules are different. And so to the extent those are sort of colliding, there's actually a lot of flexibility there in that intersection. So for example, you could create a QSBS eligible trust that is for the benefit of of you, uh, so this would be an incomplete non-grantor trust or, or an ing trust. Um, I think these are just about to be uh, outlawed in California. They are outlawed in New York, but they work in a lot of other states. Um, and so, the idea is you can put assets into this trust. It is a separate taxpayer. It does get its own QSBS exclusion, but you are a beneficiary of that trust. It's not outside of your estate. 
So wow, that's okay. taking advantage mm. of an income tax play, but there's not an estate tax advantage. It's still all just part of your estate. On the other hand, QSBS stacking can work really nicely with some just overall general estate planning that you want to do where just for example, you set up a trust for their benefit of your your children, nieces and nephews, you know, whatever, and you deposit QSBS shares into that trust. You've done estate planning, you've gotten those assets out of your taxable estate. Um, but it's also a separate QSBS taxpayer. So that trust gets the benefit of an additional up to $10 million gain exclusion. And you know the sale of those shares and everything that the liquid proceeds get invested into afterwards all becomes part of, it is not part of your estate. It all remains outside of your estate. Um, so you've achieved an estate planning, estate tax goal as well. I, I have a question on this. So you you sort of you mentioned the idea that at at some point you you maybe hit a limit of how far you can go with this sort of a thing. How do you? I mean, what what is the calculus or, around that? I mean, obviously it depends on the situation, but is, is there a general way to to frame up how far down a path like this you can go? So it's a great question. There is very little authoritative guidance right now on what qualifies for the separate share rule, mm -hmm. um, which is what we're concerned about setting up these QSBS stacking trusts. Um, we, we think based on some examples that the IRS has previously shared that if you set up trust A for child A and trust B for child B, we think that works. Um, now, if you set up trust A for uh, child A while child A is alive and then child B's kids and, and trust B for child B while B is alive and then A's kids and all grandkids. Mm. As you start to mix and match a little bit, I think you wander into a gray area where it's just less clear. And mm -hmm. so, you know, a little bit of this is risk tolerance on the part of the client. Um, and a little bit of this is sort of reading in between the lines, but we don't have we don't have a lot of good statutory guidance. To my knowledge, the IRS has not ruled on this issue. Uh, I'm not aware of any case law, so we're in a little bit of no man's land on the QSBS front, um, which is both scary and exciting. Right. Awesome. Thanks. So I'd love to get into some of the issues that that you know again. Arrow, you've you've helped uh, our clients execute um, this strategy. These strategies where you you actually have, and this is common for founder entrepreneur, C suite entrepreneur. You have a taxable estate, but you don't have a lot of liquidity. So we're not talking like you have fifty million dollars of cash and you're you know gifting it and trying to reduce gift and estate taxes. It's really you have one big illiquid asset. And, and I want to stress the importance of doing good quality planning, particularly in this case, estate planning, well in advance of signing an LOI. There's that theme again. Do this before you sign an LOI. What I want to talk about the strategy of gifting slash selling um, illiquid shares of your business to an irrevocable trust. And uh, you take us through that process and, and, and highlight the importance of why it makes a lot of sense to do that sooner rather than later. Yeah. So a lot of the strategy when it comes to estate and gift tax planning involves discounting and valuations. Mm -hmm. 
And so if you think about the the life cycle of a, a small business, you know, you have maybe your formation startup phase, maybe a growth phase, and maybe an exit phase. I'm probably skipping a bunch of phases in the middle, but just to keep it high level. So in your earliest stage, you know, you you have very little value just as a general rule. It's so volatile. It's so risky. Who knows if it's going to really work. Um, the benefit from a gift tax perspective is that you could gift away 49% of your company for a song, right? So you can move a significant chunk of what we all anticipate will be real value for a very low gift Price. So we talked about that $12.9 million exemption being sort of your threshold. Well, if you can start moving assets now without eating very much into that, or or maybe eating all the way into it, but not over that, you know, you're really, you're sort of winning the estate tax game, if you will. If you go a little bit further in the life cycle, and now you're in maybe like a growth cycle, you're you're bringing in third party investors, uh, you're not ready to exit or liquidate, but you know, there's, there's real possibility here and, and real value. Um, now we're talking about a, a transfer, a potential gift um, to family members or to a trust for the benefit of family members where valuation is a little bit gray, right? Um, maybe bringing in investors sets a little bit of a value um, coordinate. Maybe you can peg value based on what other investors are coming in at, but maybe not. Maybe you're only bringing in preferred investors and you're gifting common or something like that. Um, you might be doing 409A valuations. Those are useful, but not determinative of value. So there's a lot of gray about how much is my company really worth right now? And that is where a lot of the rubber meets the road in terms of doing some meaningful tax planning. You do need a real qualified appraisal when you gift company shares. So we would go out to a third party qualified appraiser. Uh, we'd share with them company information. They they do a formal report. That's what we show to the IRS. So um, I always recommend sort of dotting I's and crossing T's about that. But you might be in a position where the company is worth, you know, X today, but next year it's worth X times X, right? And so you've, again, gotten the benefit of a decently low valuation, you've utilized only a small amount of your gift exemption, and you've been able to transfer what will be very significant value outside of your taxable estate. Now, the issue comes into play where you're sort of in exit stage. Now, you know, you're thinking about this liquidity event, you're, you're thinking about exiting, you've got offers coming in, maybe you've got LOIs getting signed, there's no room to negotiate on what that value is. That value is being set by the offers that you're receiving or the sale price that you're negotiating. Uh, the, the IRS defines value, fair market value, is what a willing buyer would pay to a willing seller. Well, that's exactly what you have in your exit phase. So, so there's really no ability to leverage that discount into a meaningful gift over to a trust where the trust picks up the appreciation. That's sort of the, 
uh, holy grail for estate tax purposes. So, um, so that's why I think there's emphasis on gifting during those earlier stages um, when you have the ability to do it at a reduced value and maximize the appreciation happening outside of your estate. I've seen that just be a really, really powerful tool. And if I'm not mistaken too, the closer you get to the exit stage within weeks of or after you sign an LOI, isn't it true that the IRS is kind of going to scrutinize how does IRS risk change, uh, if at all? If you're doing this, I'm just going to call it last minute, last minute scramble right before you sell your business versus doing it you know, well in advance, call it a calendar year plus in advance. Yeah, thank you. Old and cold is, uh, I think, the, the goal here. You want your structure set up, funded, sort of hands off from a, we're scrambling to get things transferred right before the deal closes. I, I agree, that's always a risk. And, and look, that's a risk on both sides. You, you've got income tax risk when you're doing that. Um, and you've also got estate tax or gift tax risk when you're doing it that way. So you've got red flags sort of all over the field. Well, that that makes sense. So again, there's that uh, there's that theme of of doing it early and finding the right experts to help you out. I think I think that that's really good a really good uh, pre selling your business recap of various implications and and some strategies. Obviously, there's a lot more detail in in uh, in the strategies that you talked about. And just so everybody knows, there are there are ways there are strategies to. Um, reduce or eliminate gift and estate taxes even after you sell and after you're totally liquid. There's but but we're gonna have to save that for another episode because that's a whole <laughs> other can of worms. There are strategies that that we are implementing that Kara's helped us with as well. Um, but being this is the exit planning toolkit, we'll keep it to the uh the topics that we discussed today. Maybe we'll have you on a future episode to talk about after you've sold and you have all this cash, what are some of the things you can do? But for now, I uh, just want to say thank you very much again. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, Kara, this is uh, all, always uh, new insights gleaned from uh, from conversations, and um, we so appreciate the the perspective that you take on this. Not just the technical expertise, but sort of the human side of it, and putting it in the lens of you know, what is someone's actual risk tolerance given their overall circumstances and just uh, really so much nuance in the way that you go about your work. And we feel uh, fortunate to to overlap with you in this way. So thank you again. And yeah, definitely uh, looking forward to part two of this conversation down the road. Yeah, same here. If I could leave people with one final thought. Um I think that there's a lot of concern from clients when we talk about doing planning that's so far out, right? The the goalposts for estate planning are at death. The benefit's not realized until death. <laughs> so um, sometimes it's hard to motivate clients to be thinking about, you know, a benefit that, that's real, but that's so far out there. And so one thing I would sort of encourage folks to think about is, um, not just the time and the ultimate benefit. Um, it's easy to run the numbers and show you just how important it all is. But that planning now doesn't mean that there's no flexibility in the mm -hmm. plan. And I think if your plan is drafted well, it's a plan that even though irrevocable, these, these trusts that we're talking about, 
it can grow with you. It can evolve with you and your family. So I, I just caution people not to get too worried about, you know, my company's young, my kids are young. I have, I'm just not ready. I think there's a way to do meaningful tax planning today that has lots of room to, to move and grow with you. Well said. And that really, that ties so well into, you know, the work we do as financial advisors. It's, it can be overwhelming. It can be seeming to be not the top priority. But the reality is at any given time, all we can do is take all the information available, kind of come up with the best plan that we can, and then evolve as we evolve. And, um, you know, that's the best that we could do, control what we can. So well said. And Chris, was there any uh, parting words on your end as well? No, I'm good. Just thank you all very right. much again. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Kara. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Five Oceans podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.5oceansadvisors.com or give us a call at 310-525-5155. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Five Oceans Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your individual planning. None of the information provided is intended as investment, tax, accounting, or legal advice, as an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell, or as an endorsement of any company, security, fund, or other securities or non-securities offering. This information should not be relied upon for transacting securities or other investments. Under no circumstances shall Five Oceans Advisors be liable for any direct, indirect, special, or consequential damages that result from the use of or the inability to use the materials provided. In no event shall Five Oceans Advisors have any liability to you for damages, losses, and causes of action for accessing this commentary. Past performance is not indicative of future results. 